Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. This is 476 Barbary, right? Yeah, I'm renting this place. No, I booked it a month ago. Are you sure you have the right place? Yeah. Who am I supposed to do? Why don't you come inside and we'll call these idiots. Why don't you just crash here? Oh, no. I don't know if you got a great look at this neighborhood, but I don't think you should be out there by yourself. It's dry and there's a lock on the door. By the way, I'm Keith. Yes. You take the bedroom and I'll sleep out here on the couch. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. This is Mike joining me as always. It's Mr. Venom. How are you doing, Venom? Greetings and salutations, Airbnbers. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, Mike. How the hell are you doing? Doing well. Uh, we're getting the first signs up here that it might be transitioning to like mid. Like or uh, that mid like month, half month between uh, summer and fall. So uh, <laughs> hopefully we're done with hundred degrees, but uh, you never know up here. So I, you know, I, I this is a time of year where I see like people from like different parts of the country, especially. I mean, outside the country too, but especially other regions. People talking about like putting up Halloween decorations, all that stuff, and you know, football starting, and I'm like, man. I'm festive too, but it's hard to even think about that stuff when it's 105. <laughs> ah, all right. Well, joining us as always, it's Don and Ellie. What's up, Don? How is it going? Yeah, doing good. Always happy to be here. All right. Well, today we are talking about a theatrical release that just uh, came out this past Friday. Uh, this one kind of... I don't think there was like a ton going on with it ahead of time. The trailer kind of dropped a couple months ago and it looked pretty intriguing for those of us that still watch trailers. I didn't know much about it before that and uh, I probably would have seen it anyway just because it's in the theater. But it definitely did look interesting and it is titled Barbarian. So from IMDb, 
Yeah, there it goes. Uh, A woman staying at an Airbnb discovers that the house she has rented is not what it seems. Okay, that's pretty good. Easy synopsis. That doesn't give away much. Um, So, general thoughts are first up. That's how we do it. And Venom, you're pretty much always first. So, give us your general thoughts on Barbarian. Barbarian. This is an interesting movie for me because uh, going into it, I was noticing that it was getting a lot of positive, you know, word of mouth and stuff like that from like from our community, the podcasting community, things like that. But I still try to not let that stuff affect me when I go in. Overall, I had a pretty good time with Barbarian. Um, I think it's a decent story. We we have a lot of people talking about how it's a very original story. And I, I think what they mean is that it's an original IP. It's not based on anything. It's not an homage, a remake, a, re, a requel, whatever you want to go with. Um, but as far as original story, I mean, we've seen this this type of story before i could name a couple of examples but since we're still in our kind of spoiler free section i'm gonna hold on to that until later but um i still had a pretty good time with the movie um i thought the kills were pretty decent what we could see of them uh this movie is very dark very very dark there are scenes where um especially when kills occur in these dark scenes it's like the sound effects really help um you know the whole the visceral experience of it all but it is dark and you know sometimes they'll use fancy camera angles where you don't actually see you know the actual impact or you know point of damage or whatever you want to go with but you know you're still like behind the character or you know at an angle so i mean you're still getting the most you can for an r-rated theatrical release my problem with this movie, though, is a problem that I have with a lot of movies, and it's 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 kind of becoming one of my number one pet peeves lately, and that's just stupid characters in horror movies making stupid decisions, and unfortunately, this movie is filled with that. Now, I did find myself having enough of a good time with the film. Once Once we get to the third act and the action really ramps up, you, you tend to forget and forgive maybe even some of the silly decisions that were made early on, but it's still, you guys know that's a major pet peeve for me. Uh, I I can't forgive that stuff. I I am going to say that this film is good enough that if you can suspend disbelief and you can just, you know, accept the fact that there are stupid people making stupid decisions in this film, I think you're going to have a really good time with it. Hell, it might even turn into one of your favorites of the year for me. It's a good it's a good story. Like I actually the story is my favorite part of it. I actually love this story. I love the flashback scene. It's always great to see Richard Brake. I, I know some people are kind of, you know, make the accusation that he plays the same character in every movie that he's one note. But you know what? I really like that one note. So I still accept it. So and actually, he's more subdued in this movie. He's not like the yelling, you know, banshee psychopath that he is in a lot of his movies. He kind of so it is slightly different, but he's still doing things that Richard Brake characters do. So, you know, uh, you know it, it's it's not exactly a stretch for him, but um I still did enjoy the movie. Like I said, uh, I, I would give an above average rating to this. If it weren't for the characters making very questionable decisions, I could see this being a favorite of the year. But just ultimately, because I was so frustrated with that first watch, I did get a chance to watch it a second time. And I will say the second watch helped improve my my overall rating of the film because like i said once you kind of accept that a film is filled with stupid people then you know you kind of enjoy the ride a little bit more so like i said i i think this is a quality film it's just a matter of how much that horror trope of 
dumb people doing dumb things bothers you. And if it doesn't bother you that much, I think you're really going to dig this film. Um, yeah, that's probably it for me for general thoughts. All right. I'll pass it over to Don. What are your general thoughts on Barbarian? Uh, yeah, um, I don't have much else to add other than what Venom said. Um, I think he and I are pretty much uh, right on with this one. Uh, I, I, I like where it goes. I like where all of these various inter- intermingling storylines come from, because I think it sets up three very kind of quality storylines here. And you, you kind of get a little um, in, you get more invested in this than you think it you would, because I'm not usually a fan of these kinds of films. Um, I, I, I like the setting. I like the way that the house is treated. I like the atmosphere it sets up. I like everything that it plays out, but Oh my God. Talk about just keeping the film going for the sake of stupidity. Uh, he's, I, I mean, once we get the reveal of the basement and everything that goes on down there, it's like, okay, brainstorm or not, get the fuck out of there. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ, people. I mean, since the self-preservation. And I mean, I can't speak for myself, but I would probably imagine that my first thought would be cut the gas cord, light the fridge, and, you know, not the fridge, the stove, and just say to hell with it and see if that stirs any kind of, you know, stirs something. I mean... I, I don't want to get too much spoilers because, I mean, this is one that I, I know a lot of people are saying you need to go in as blind as possible. And I, I think that actually is true. Mm-hmm. I think this is one that you definitely need to go in knowing very little because, you know, there's so much going on. I think it's probably a little too convoluted for its own good. I think this could have been streamlined a little bit better and probably, have you know, eliminated some stupidity. But... Yeah, overall, I, I like it. I don't really consider it one of the year's best, but I, 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 I can say this. Uh, considering the deluge of crap we've had to watch over the last few weeks, uh, this is miles better by comparison, and I think that kind of enhanced my personal enjoyment of it a little bit more. But overall, yeah, um, this one really could have been streamlined, eliminated maybe one or two extraneous flaws and just, you know, kept it a little simpler and probably wouldn't have had the characters reacting so stupidly to these decisions. Because there's like five or six points in the film where it's just like, you know, haul ass. You know, there's like no other explanation for staying in that house. And... I mean, yeah, we're going to get into spoilers here, but uh, yeah, overall, it's a fun time. If you can get over stupidity, you'll probably have a higher rating on it, but at the very least, go in knowing as little as possible, but yeah, um, fun time overall. Okay. Um, As far as I go, I I probably liked it a little more than you guys, but I do agree with some of the criticism about stupid decisions. I actually was kind of putting that like I was willing to like overlook that. But there the two things I think people might have an issue is one, there, there's an interaction between our main um, female actress or character in this and um, a couple of cops at a certain uh, point that I just thought was I I was frustrating scenes in this movie. Yeah, and I I don't understand like it's it's hard to get into it too much, but I it was just frustrating and annoying how that scene played out. And then the other thing is, I do think the movie takes a big 
tone tonal change once a, a certain character is introduced and I don't want to say necessarily the movie is less good because of it because I, like I did enjoy uh, what we get from that point on and I did like laugh and I think I, I have to assume that they wanted to uh, they like you know they were pe- purposely bringing this tonal change because there's no way um, everything with that character to me can be seen any other way than like almost kind of interjecting like comedy maybe as to like break the tension or to like reset you up for more to come later in the movie. It's just that uh, I would say it's kind of like just odd the way it's specifically structured. Um, I almost, yeah, it's almost like a, not like a three, like a traditional three act movie in a way. It's kind of like, it's more like three movies. Yeah, sort you sort of it's like I think like Don kind of put it the correct way. It's almost like three intertwining stories, you know, three characters experience the same thing, which each could have almost been their own movie in a way. Um, and you know, they intertwine around the house and what's going on with it for different reasons. But uh, you know, all that said, it, all that me saying that makes me think or might make people think I'm down on it, but actually I I did have a lot of fun with it. I, where it goes and what we end up with and the third act I thought was, was really fun. And I thought the ending was satisfying, but there, I did think there was a few stumbles on the way to get there that we can get into during the spoilers. Um, But I, I, and I would say, you know, for the people that are on the fence these days about trailers, I, I will say the trailer doesn't really give away much at all. The trailer, kind of sets you up for what the first act is giving to you but it goes many places that the trailer never alludes to which i think is a good job like i'll always praise a trailer when i feel like it it does enough to get people interested but it doesn't really tip its hat on what's to come and i think it did a good job in this case so yeah just to wrap up my general thoughts um yeah i i did have fun with this and uh we'll have to break break it down in spoilers uh, to see what the you know the issues uh that we all had with it were so uh back to you venom i one thing i me- i forgot to mention during my general thoughts and i i, I guess i kind of did mention it with some of the stupid characters in my opinion and i know this is only my opinion there was only one likable character in this whole fucking movie for me I know other people are going to, you know, look at, watch the movie and be like, oh, no, there were more than one. But just the, the kind of viewer, horror movie viewer that I am, there's only one likable character in this movie. And God damn it, it's the first character that's dispatched from the movie. And ah, as soon as that happened, I'm like, oh, please don't let this movie go in a weird direction because we, we just lost, the, uh, you know, my favorite character. And then it, it kind of does, but not necessarily in the bad way, like... um there is a major tonal shift uh, between the first and second act in this film. And, and when I say major, I fucking mean major. Like literally you're in the, you're in the middle of a dank, dark, bloody horror, you know, horror set piece. And then bam, out of nowhere, you're in fucking Malibu driving on the PCH, um, you know, in a convertible with Justin Long. And it, 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 it's, it's such a tonal shift. It's almost jarring. Almost. I I would say for some people it's going to be jarring because then we spend most of the second act with Justin Long's character, AJ, 
And, and the whole time you're like, well, wait a minute, what about the house? What's going on? And then finally, once after about 15, 20 minutes of, of this AJ character, we finally find out his connection to the house. And yeah, it makes sense, but I just feel like the filmmakers could have found a better way to kind of introduce that plot point. Because I was just confused for like 10, 15 minutes. Like, what the hell am I watching? Like, I, I thought it was just a cold open at first. I'm like, oh, was that a cold open? And this is our main character? Like, it just, it, it leaves you scratching. That's what I thought. Bit. That's what I was questioning, too. I was okay, like, good. It's not just me. I was, I was like, that, that was up. one hell of a setup for the movie. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I didn't want to bring that up in the spoilers. But, yeah, I was kind of thinking, I was like, why the hell are we spending all this time? I mean, I, I was going to bring it up. But, yeah, good. I didn't know if that was going to be a spoiler or not, but. It's kind of a tonal spoiler, but I'm not giving away plot points quite yet. But yeah, so, you know, fully, if you haven't watched the movie yet and you're you're just kind of getting our general thoughts before you make the decision to go, I would say I would recommend it still. Even though I had a problem with some of the storytelling, some of the character decisions, some of the characters in general. Um, as Mike mentioned, there's a couple of police officers here that are just just fucking insipid it just doesn't make sense to me the decisions that they make even though they're in fucking detroit the murder capital of the country it still doesn't make any fucking um sense not, not to mention like <laughs> yeah and and not to mention and we'll get into it in the spoilers yeah. but the circumstances surrounding that specific scene and what's going on i have a hard time that thinking or believing that that's how they're going to react in that situation. Yeah. And it just seems so fake. Yeah. And I can one. Yeah. Once we get into spoilers, I'll give specific reasons why I was like, um, just look to see, you know, uh, we'll get into it. Cause I, it's, yeah. You know, I can't really <laughs> say more. <laughs> it is infuriating though. I know what you mean. I, and I was just, I was like that, you know, the first time in the theater, uh, I watched this on Saturday morning the first time. And, um, you know, like I said, walked out of the theater like, OK, that was a pretty good movie. I really enjoyed the first and third act. I, I think those are the high points of the film. But then sandwiched in the second act is the flashback scene where we kind of find out more of the history of that house. And I love that scene. I think that scene is so well made because it's not violent. It's not gory. It gives us just a, it, all it gives you is the breadcrumbs that you need to figure out what has been happening in this house. And that's all I wanted from that flashback scene. And it was perfect. Like, yeah, the flashback scene could have gotten way more violent. It could, could have shown a lot more of what happened in that house in the past. But the fact that they were a little bit more subtle with it just to kind of show us, OK, you know, here's this character who obviously used to live in the house because they show you know, literally, we see the house in present day, and then instantly it, it goes to, you know, uh, sometime in the past. By the way, I do have some nitpicks with that scene, with, which I can talk about here. Do you gentlemen have any guesses as to what year roundabout that scene was, the flashback scene? Like, I think I know what the filmmakers were going for, mm. but they kind of fucked up. <laughs> oh, okay. I think I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, so when the scene starts, when the flashback scene starts, it very it very much looks like the 70s. It almost looks like the 50s and 60s because all the houses in the neighborhood are all pristine. They're all ultra colorful. It definitely looks like a post-World War II America. You know, everybody is doing well, living in houses, blah, blah, blah. But then things happen 
also all the cars in it are 70s cars i i when i when i watched the second time i checked every single car in that scene is from the 70s there are no 80s vehicles in that scene right yeah right yeah (laughs) he has a vcr on his tv now i will say vcrs were invented in 1979 or should i say not invented they were invented in 71 but they they uh, they were released to the public in 79 the problem is the original vcrs that came out back in 79 were top loading vcrs as in a tray would pop out from the top of the of the unit you would stick the tape in and then push the tray back in Front-loading VCRs didn't come out until 1982, and Richard Brake's character has a front-loading VCR in this scene, yet everything screams 70s. Now, mind you, this is Detroit, and maybe the filmmakers are trying to make the point that Detroit is behind every other city in the country. I don't know, but it just, you know... Mind you, this is stuff that nobody would notice except someone who was there in the 70s. Like most people wouldn't even because the scene was so dark. Um, There's a scene in the flashback where we see Richard Brake's character going and getting supplies from like a pharmacy or a hardware store or whatever you want to go with. And he picks up a VHS tape. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, that's the first thing that struck me as odd. He's buying a video cassette tape in a pharmacy or um like i said hardware store local convenience store whatever you want to go with and i'm like no that did not happen in the 70s you're talking mid 80s before you would see like vhs tapes sold in places that weren't specifically video stores and so that was the first like question mark like wait a minute what is going on what year is this and then when we get back to the house that's when I'm staring at the TV. And like I said, the scene is so dark that most people aren't going to notice. But I concentrated on his TV and I look on top of it and there it is, a front-loading VCR. So I know it's a nitpick, folks. It's not going to affect the movie in any way, shape, or form for anyone. But like I said, the older I get, the more I notice these errors. And, you know, for those who don't know, I've been in quality assurance, uh, computer software quality insurance for over uh, 24 years at this point. So my job is to point out mistakes. So that's why I do it so much on the podcast. So please don't hate me. It's just kind of part of my DNA at this point. Um, but yeah, um, aside from all the little mistakes and the character decisions and everything else, overall, I do recommend the movie. It's a fun movie. I think I kind of lie... Um, in the same place as I did with Malignant from last year. Um, Another movie that I found to be fun that I enjoyed more on the second watch than I did on the first watch, because again, of the crazy tonal shift that you get about halfway through Malignant. Um, This movie, the tonal shift isn't quite that bad, but the fact that you're in this house in Detroit and then suddenly you're on the coast in Malibu, it just, it's a little jarring, um, you know, for some viewers. Obviously, the three of us kind of agree on that statement, so we all noticed it, and so I'm sure others are going to notice it too. And I did hear another reviewer online also mention it, so yeah, it's definitely there. Um, I don't know. I mean, we haven't. I haven't really talked much about the filmmaking as far as like cinematography because ultimately it's Detroit, Michigan, and we all know what fucking Detroit, Michigan looks like. It's going to be hard to get nice cinematography in a rundown neighborhood. Like, I don't know. 
Um, I did like the contrast, though, of, like, the neighborhood, like, in the flashback, how, like, yes. the whole neighborhood is nice, and then you fast forward to modern times, it's, like, the one, it's it's slowly, like, a changing neighborhood. I mean, I thought that was a cool aspect. And and then the other question is, too, how is that house still there? Like, I, I understand that, I guess we'll get into it in the spoiler section, because there, there's, there's little bits of information behind that that I guess you can defend why that house is still there but it's literally the only functional house in this neighborhood and I'm not exaggerating folks every house is boarded up torn down windows busted doors hanging on the hinges just it literally looks like a ghost town it's just a shithole except for this one house in the middle of the neighborhood with a nice lawn that's all looking all nice and I'm like what the fuck is going on? Who is keeping up this house? Blah, blah, blah. Like this house must be literally worthless because of the neighborhood it's in. Like I, you couldn't sell that house for 500 bucks. I don't think, I mean, who would buy it for fuck's sake? So yeah, weird little issues here and there. But as far as, like I said, um, some of the scenes that are in the dark might be a little bit too dark for viewers, obviously in a movie theater, it, it's optimal. Um, at home, if you've got lights on while you're watching it, I got a feeling that some people might, you know, might not catch every single thing that we're seeing down in the in the catacombs of the house, if you will. So uh, go into it with that, you know, with that little bit of warning. But overall, I would still say this needs to be watched. This is still a pretty good movie. I mean, this is only uh, our director here, Zach Krager. Uh, this is a second time feature for him. Uh, most people would know him as a director from uh, the, the Whitest Kids You Know, if you remember that uh, comedy sketch show from what, like the late 90s, I think. Uh, I, I believe it was out of Canada. Uh, he directed uh, a bunch of episodes from one of the seasons of that series. So that would probably be his biggest claim to fame. He also directed a movie called Miss March that I vaguely remember. I know I saw it, but I remember so little about it. I do remember thinking it was an okay movie for what it was, but... But with this film, yeah, now now this director's on my radar, and now I'm really looking forward to what he can do. And of course, Bill Skarsgård, my friends. It's always great to see Bill Skarsgård. Bill Skarsgård is one of those weird guys that, to, a cer to certain women, he's like a really attractive, hunky dude. But then to other women, he's an absolute creeper with dead eyes. So it's you're kind of, it just depends on what kind of a girl you are as far as how you look at Bill Skarsgård. I guess all – well, not all the Skarsgårds because I guess one of them is like just traditional handsome, blah, blah, blah. I forget which one. I don't care that much. But, yeah, um, great to see Bill Skarsgård. I mean, we get Kate Bosworth for like one scene, which is weird. Kind of odd that she would just uh, sign on to this just to do the one scene. But there you go. There she is. Um, not really too many other big names. Like I said, Skarsgård, Justin Long, uh, Richard Brake. Those are going to be the biggest names that we get in here. And then, you know, like I said, the quickie appearance from Kate Bosworth. But, uh, yeah, like I said, overall, I say, watch it, give it, give it your 20 bucks or whatever movies cost in your neighborhood. Now, hopefully you've got, you know, a rewards program like Mike and I, so you can go and see as many movies as you like, but yeah, this is still worth one to go check out in the theaters. I got to see this in Dolby IMAX, and I had an absolute blast with it. No, this was an IMAX? I don't know. Wow. It, it wasn't the true IMAX, you know, the ridiculous. Oh, movie. okay. It was yeah. uh, the LIMAX, as Jeremy from 22 Shots calls it. <laughs> LIMAX. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, it, it was the basic, like, the, we out here, we call it the Valley IMAX, because all the theaters in the Valley that claim to have IMAX, it's, 
it's not the true IMAX. Uh, we would have to go to Universal City, uh, Universal Studios to get to like a true IMAX theater. But, you know, that's a story for another time. But the point is, I did get to see this in a Dolby theater with an IMAX screen and I had a blast with it. You know, other, other than the scenes where I was just seething because of some of the character decisions, once I kind of got past those, I did have a really good time with the movie. And I think most people will as well. So. Gentlemen, anything else we want to say before we jump into the spoiler section? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. All right, then. Our movie opens up with a young woman named Tess, played by the beautiful Georgina Campbell. Uh, we, our last episode was The Invitation, right? Uh, another beautiful um, mm-hmm. colored woman in, um, in Emmanuel. Uh, I, I, Emmanuel, I forget her last name, sorry. But Misande um, from Game of Thrones. But anyway. Uh, we see Tess. She arrives at a house. Now, she arrives at night, so we don't see the neighborhood. We All we see is the house because it's the only house with lights on. She doesn't understand why when she first gets there. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But when she gets to the house, um, there's already someone there. Uh, the key is not in the key box, in the drop box where it was supposed to be. She's knocking. She's calling the, the agent that, you know, uh, the Airbnb agent that made the reservation for her. She's unable to get a hold of her. Finally, after knocking, and by the way, it's raining really hard at this point. So uh, she decides to just go back into her car and try to wait. And then the lights come on inside the house. And, of course, she's wondering what's going on. Are the owners still here? She knocks on the door, and our friend Bill Skarsgård answers. He is Keith in this film, and when he answers the door, basically he says, well, I've, I've rented this house for the day. Um, Home Away, I think, was the app that he used, whereas Tess used Airbnb. So apparently the house was double booked. Uh, since Skarsgård got there first, you know, he, he felt bad for her because it's raining. They're in a shit neighborhood. You know, she's not from Detroit, every, you know, everything else. So and, you know, she did call a bunch of hotels and unfortunately wasn't able to get a room in the area because of some conventions that were going on. So, you know, they, they work out an agreement. They end up talking a little bit. They get friendly and they end up just making the agreement that they're going to stay there now. The reason I say that Bill Skarsgård's Keith is the only likable character in this movie (laughs) is this conversation that he ends up having with this girl because, you know, obviously this is a young woman and, you know, tall ass Bill Skarsgård in the house with her. So she's obviously, uh, you know, uneasy the whole time. And he offers her a, a glass of tea, a cup of tea, hot tea that he had just made. She doesn't take a sip of it. She just looks at it and walks away from it. They make the agreement to uh, give her the bedroom while Keith will sleep on the couch for the night. Uh, They make the agreement that they're both going to call the people, their their agents who made the reservation, and they're both going to get a refund. Uh, So they, you know, they kind of have the joke of, oh, it's a free night stay. Screw it. Um, Tess ends up going to take a shower. When she comes out of the shower, Keith is sitting at the uh, dinner table with an unopened bottle of wine. And then he goes into this whole diatribe about how he totally understands that why she didn't drink the tea because she didn't see him make it. And I probably wouldn't drink the tea either. Um, He talks about, uh, I didn't open the bottle of wine because I wanted to open it in front of you. So you didn't think that, you know, there's anything shady going on, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, and and she's still, Tess is still very standoffish at this point, still kind of guarded. 
eventually she does kind of relent and realize that, you know, Keith is no threat to her whatsoever. Uh, They end up going ahead and popping the bottle of wine. They finish off the bottle and they end up just calling it a night. Like there's no romantic, um, uncomfortable scenes or anything silly like that. They literally just very friendly, have a good night. You know, we'll deal with this in the morning. Adios. So Tess (laughs) ends up going to bed. And during that evening, she hears her bedroom door open. Uh, You know, like I said, she's in the bedroom. Keith is out on the couch. She hears the bedroom door open, but when she looks up, there's no one there. The door is open, but nobody's there. She walks out into the living room. Keith is out in the living room um, having a nightmare. He's asleep, but he's very obviously having some kind of nightmare or uncomfortable dream. She goes out and wakes him up, but she does it in a way that absolutely terrifies him because she, you know, he basically comes out of a dead sleep and she's standing there, you know, about to grab his arm. So he freaks out. He starts accusing her of, you know, what the fuck are you doing? And, and, and then that's when the kind of the back and forth goes where she's like, did you open my bedroom door? And he's like, of course I didn't blah, blah, blah. She, they end up not, you know, continuing the conversation. She goes back to the bedroom, locks the bedroom door behind her this time goes to sleep and wakes up the next morning. The door is still closed and locked. Everything seems good. Keith has already left for the morning. Oh, by the way, Tess is here for a job interview with a documentary company uh, or a documentary films company uh, in the Detroit area working with independent artists. So that's why she's here. That's why she's renting the Airbnb. So like I said, when she wakes up in the morning, Keith is already gone. He leaves her a note saying, you know, sorry, I had to get an early start. Um, you know, we'll talk later when we're, when we both get back here, Tess goes ahead and just goes to her job interview. Uh, it seems like it's a successful job interview at the end of the interview. The woman basically says, Oh yeah, yeah. We'll call you tomorrow and get everything set up. So it seems like she got the job. She's happy. She's in a good mood. She in passing, she tells the interviewer where she's staying and you can kind of see the, the, the woman's face just kind of go white and just, uh, emotionless. She's yeah. like, really? You're in that neighborhood? Are you sure you want to be out there? Now, mind you, she's only seen the neighborhood at night at this point. She hasn't actually seen it during the day. Um, when she gets back from the interview, that's when she's finally seeing the neighborhood for the first time. And that's when we, as the audience, are also seeing the neighborhood for the first time. And that's when we see that all these houses are condemned, they're boarded up. You know, grass is uh, six feet tall in most of the yards, windows broken, uh, you know, cars with no wheels or rims, you know, in the front yards, you know, basically just a ghost town, except, like I said, for this one house she pulled. I mean, it's literally a diamond in the rough. It's this one little house that I wouldn't go so far as to call it a beautiful house, but at least it's somewhat kept up. The interior looks decent. The bedroom looks nice. The bathroom looks nice, blah, blah, blah. But she realizes that, oh, shit, I'm basically in a slum right now and I'm here for two more days. And, uh, you know, at at that moment when she's having that thought, we see a homeless person start running towards her, just going, lady, hey, lady, doesn't seem like he's being aggressive. But again, you know, this is a young, petite woman in a Detroit neighborhood that she's not uh, comfortable with. So as soon as she sees the homeless guy, She basically runs into the house, locks the door behind her, and she tries to call the police. Unfortunately, this is Detroit, where pretty much every unit in Detroit is always busy at all times of the day or night. 
Mm-hmm. So the dispatcher lets her know, no, we're not sending anybody out there just for that. If he was still there trying to get into the house, then we would send someone. But if he's gone, and obviously Tess inside a locked house can't tell if he's gone. He could be out there just biding his time for all she knows. But the cops, obviously, you know, the dispatcher's not being cooperative and just says, if he comes back, just call us again, which, you know, isn't really any kind of satisfaction at all. And then at this point, Tess is in the house by herself and the the basement door opens by itself. It just opens up. And obviously, being the curious lady that she is, she decides to open the door and it leads into a basement. There's a set of stairs that go down into like a basement. She goes down there and she sees that there's just a bunch of discarded items, old radios, old mirrors, some furniture, shit like that. She's uh, perusing some of the shelves that have like old paint cans and shit like that on there. And she notices a rope going through a hole through the wall into a hole through the wall that's adjacent to that part of the basement. Obviously, as any normal person, I I wouldn't call this one a stupid decision because I'd probably do the same shit myself. But yeah, she basically pulls on the rope, you know, because it's very obviously some kind of pulley system because of the way it's set up, the way they they put a knot at the end so that the rope doesn't completely go through the hole, blah, blah, blah. She pulls on the rope and we open a corridor. We see like a corridor. And at the end of the corridor, there's another room. At this point, unfortunately, Tess realizes that she's locked in the basement. She basically goes upstairs to try to get her phone or a flashlight of some kind, realizes that the door closed and locked behind her. So she is now stuck in the basement. She can't get out the window, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And then, like I said, she finds the rope. Uh, She ends up setting up a mirror so that it reflects light from the lamp that's in the basement down into this hall just enough so that she can see because she notices that at the end of the hall, there's a closed room. She sees a door uh, and a small room at the end of the hall. So she decides to go investigate. And my friends, this is where I start to call this character an idiot. Because at this point, I am running out of this fucking house. And it's not even anything all that bad, but it's just the implication of what it is. When she opens <laughs> the door, we see a small empty room. Empty except for a single bed, which is incredibly dirty. A single bucket, which is incredibly dirty, a video camera on a tripod, like uh, on a stand, and then we see a single bloody handprint on the wall. Now, my friends, when you see something like that hidden in someone's basement, do we really have to guess what happened in that room? I mean, yeah, there could there, there there might be multiple things that happened in there, but ultimately they're all terrible. And As soon as she sees this, I'm thinking, okay, she's gone. She's going to get the fuck out of here. Homeless guy outside, be damned. She's going to run out to her truck and get the fuck out of here. No, she fucking decides to start investigating the area. She notices that there's yet a second door at the end of the hall. That's like, it's like a hidden door. There's no doorknob. It doesn't very obviously look like a door until you bump into it and you hear it shaking. She opens the door, and my friends, we see a stairway that looks like it's a fucking stairway to hell. And yet, (laughs) luckily, she doesn't go down those stairs. She is smart enough to be like, nah, fuck this. Um, And luckily, at that exact moment, Keith shows up at the house. He tries to get in, but obviously the key isn't in the Dropbox because Tess took it. She's in the house. To, you know, she took the key to get in the house. So the only key that's in that Dropbox is with Tess. Keith can't get in. 
Luckily, Tess does hear that Keith is outside and she kind of motions to him through the basement window that, you know, I'm stuck down here. The door locked behind me. I can't get out. They eventually get the window open, the basement window that they're able to, you know, between the two of them, they're able to pry it open just enough so that she could slide the key over to Keith. Keith then opens the door and joins Tess down in the basement. Now, this is at this point, I started to think that Tess might be a little smart because she literally, as soon as she's let out of the basement by Keith, she runs into her bedroom, starts packing all her bags and literally just says to Keith, dude, we got to get out of here. We got to fucking get out of here right now. She doesn't try to explain anything to him, which is exactly what I would do too. just get the fuck out. Eventually, she does tell him what she saw down there, but he I don't know if it's that he doesn't believe her or that he has, he just has to see it with his own eyes before he can make his own judgment call. So he tells her, please don't leave. Stay up here just in case I get locked in the basement as well. And he goes down there. He ends up finding the room, you know, the room with the bed, the bucket and the camera. And he does yell back up to the stairs, you know, that he found the room. But then a few seconds later, Tess tries to yell back at him to, you know, hey, Keith, get out of there. Let's go. No answer. No answer from Keith whatsoever. Finally, she like an absolute idiot. And I'm sorry. I understand that she's being compassionate, but she just fucking met this guy last night. They're not romantic. They're not anything, you know have a fucking sense of self-preservation. Like Don mentioned earlier, no one in this goddamn movie has a sense of self-preservation and it bugs the shit out of me. She ends up going back down to the basement. Uh, The door almost closes on her, but this time she is able to stop it. She props up a chair in front of the door to make sure that it doesn't close accidentally. She walks down there and she walks into that secret little bedroom and Keith isn't there. He's nowhere to be found. She's yelling for him and he doesn't know, you know, he's not answering. Finally, she hears a scream from Keith coming uh, from the stairway to hell that I previously mentioned. And he's screaming like he's in pain and he's screaming for help. Um, It's very, very uh, low. So it sounds like he's really, really far away. It sounds like that staircase just goes down forever. And that's when she has her little moral dilemma where she's like, should I just fucking leave or should I go help him? And of course she makes the wrong decision and walks down those fucking stairs to try to help this guy. She does end up finding him in what is a labyrinth of tunnels underneath the house with various little rooms here and there. She ends up finding a room that looks like it's currently being lived in. (laughs) In fact, there's a TV that's on in the little room and what's playing on the screen it's a goddamn nursing video breastfeeding like how to breastfeed your child properly and when she sees this you know she you know i don't know that she freaks out but she again she hears a scream coming from the corridor from the labyrinth if you will she she goes out there you know with what little light from her cell phone she has she does eventually find Bill curled up, excuse me, uh, Keith. Well, Bill Skarsgård, Keith. She does eventually find him curled up on the basement floor. She thinks that he fell down there accidentally. So she's like, come on, let's get out of here. But then he tells her, we're not alone here. There's somebody down here. And obviously, you know, she doesn't really want to hear it. She's just like, come on, let's go, let's go. And then finally he says, something bit me. And as soon as he says something bit me, we see this naked, 
um, very tall woman just who's I don't want to say mutated, but th- this woman looks like she's lived in a basement for her whole fucking life. And, and she's butt naked, like I said. So we've got just big old floppy tits flying all over the place. And we see her grab Keith by the head and just start slamming his head into the stone walls of the, of the corridor, just absolutely crushing his head. And then bam, the scene just ends. And now we're in beautiful Malibu, California, driving in a convertible with Justin Long down the Pacific coast highway. And it, it, like I said, it's just so jarring because you just saw an intense kill scene and then it just goes to this beautiful, idyllic scene that just, you know, like I said, it's jarring. So we're introduced to AJ. Justin Long is an actor who um, basically is, uh, has just recently shot a pilot. And the pilot is about to be picked up by the network. But then uh, AJ is accused of sexual assault by one of his co-stars. Apparently during the filming of the pilot, He got a little bit too friendly with one of the uh, co-stars, one of his female co-stars, who may have been a little young for him. And she is now accusing him of sexual assault and publicly, too. Like, she came out to the press. Um, It's not like he heard this from a lawyer. I mean, he did at first hear this from a lawyer, but literally as soon as he arrives um, at the place that he's staying at in L.A., it's all over the news. You know, A.J., blah, you know, actor A.J., blah, blah, blah accused of sexual assault and everything else. And instantly AJ, you know, denies the whole thing says, no, no, what? This has to be a misunderstanding. I don't understand what's going on. We don't get an explanation of what actually happened that night until later in the film. So keep that in mind. But yeah, he's basically playing the the victim here. He, he wants to call the accuser and talk to her and his lawyer is like adamant do not do that do not in any way shape or form call her do not try to communicate with her in any way shape or form she has officially you know submitted the paperwork to the court and you just can't speak to her any lawyer will tell you that you don't want to speak to the person that you're either suing or being sued by in court so um And then uh, basically the hammer falls after all of the accusations. He loses the pilot. Uh, The pilot actually doesn't even get picked up because of this accusation. So basically AJ cost everyone on that show a job because of his stupidity. Um, And first he, you know, like I said, he loses his pilot and then he realizes that he has to, um, get legal fees because not only is he being accused of sexual assault, he is also going to counter sue the accuser uh, for libel, of course, for lying. And, you know, when, when his agent basically, not his agent, but his financial wealth manager uh, basically tells him, okay, well, if you need this much money for two different court cases that may not even go your way, you're going to go through this much of the money that you have saved up. And he, and basically tells them you'll be broken four months if this, if you don't get another job, because obviously no one's going to hire him at this point. He has been publicly accused. It's Johnny Depp all over again. Well, maybe not Johnny Depp. It's more like army hammer than Johnny Depp since Johnny Depp actually turned out to be fairly. Well, I thought with the producer thing, I thought it was a direct rip on Harvey Weinstein. Well, I mean, he's an actor. So I, I, I tend to think more like the, uh, 
like the Bill Burrs and the uh, Weinstein is valid. Don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. Weinstein was practically a kingpin with the shit that he did. So, uh, whereas oh. AJ is just a dumb idiot who got a little overzealous with a girl. Well, <laughs> at least that's what we think right now that he got a little overzealous with. This well, the thing is, we don't know. I mean, exactly. that's at this point we don't. I think is we purposely aren't supposed to know because mm-hmm. they play with the whole, oh, is he really a good guy and here's his redemption story? Or, and then we'll figure out, or we find out later, yeah. kind of more of his character. Exactly. So, um, so like I said, first he realizes that he's going to be broken a few months. Then his financial manager tells him, you should probably find someone new because I'm not renewing our contract. So now he doesn't have a financial manager. He doesn't have a job. He's going to be broke in four months because of the lawsuits. So as it turns out, he owns property in Detroit, Michigan, hmm, which actually turns out to be his hometown. He's actually from Detroit. Uh, maybe, uh, apparently, you know, maybe when he first got successful, he decided to buy some properties out there. And lo and behold, he is, of course, the owner of 476 Barbary Lane, uh, which, by the way, I didn't actually mention uh, the, the name of the street, which does tie in with the name of the movie. And I actually really like how it ties in. We'll get into it more when we get uh, a little bit more reveals later on. So Justin Long basically decides, well, I can't afford to live in LA. So I'm going to go to Michigan. I'm going to try to sell off my properties so that I can get a little bit of money for my case and maybe keep one of them, you know, to actually live in. When he calls his lawyer and tells him this, the lawyer absolutely freaks out. Dude, you're being accused of sexual assault. You can't leave the state. What is wrong with you? And, you know, Justin Long is like, well, wait a minute. Am I going to get arrested? And he's like, well, more than likely, dude. I mean, she publicly made the accusation. Yeah. If she convinces the DA, uh, the district attorney, that she's telling the truth, they're going to put a warrant out for you. And if you're out of state, it's going to be a national warrant. And suddenly you're dealing with a whole that that's federal. That's a federal charge there. That's not even state. So you're kind of fucked there. But at this point, he's already in Detroit. He literally called his lawyer from the airport in Detroit, from his rental car to let him know that he was going to be out of California. So there's that whole exchange. And then, of course, we see him drive up to his house, uh, 476 Barbary Lane. Again, the neighborhood is just trashed he doesn't seem to uh, react too crazily not like tested when she first saw the neighborhood uh in the daylight so you know maybe he's aware of you know the, the condition of the neighborhood but when he gets to the house he realizes that there's an suv parked in front of his house that he doesn't recognize when he gets in the house he sees that the bed the beds are all messed up um there's luggage there's like two people's worth of luggage in his house one one piece of luggage in the living room, one piece of luggage in the bedroom. And he basically calls his real estate agent and says, like, what's going on? Like, what happened here? Why is my house such a mess? The agent lets him know that we don't clean the houses after people check out. We clean the houses after people reserve it. So right before they get there, the house is cleaned up, which, of course, pisses, you know, AJ off. And, you know, because he's like, there, there's luggage here. It seems like there's people still living here. The agent tells him, no, according to our records, nobody should have been there for the last two weeks. The last reservation was two weeks ago. And, and he ends up just hanging up with her, kind of pissy. And then he just starts looking through all the bags, uh, looking through the luggage. He ends up finding Tess's laptop. It's kind of a weird scene because he, he ends up opening the laptop, trying one password, 
and obviously it doesn't go through and he gets pissed off and he just kind of throws the laptop uh, on a piece of furniture across the room, um, which seems, you know, kind of selfish, self-centered, but it does go with the character. It tracks with this character. The more we learn about this character, the more we're kind of realizing that he's maybe not the nice guy that he thinks he is. That night, he ends up going out with some friends, uh, you know, kind of a big reunion because he's been in L.A. for so long. And he's with one of his friends in the bar. And the friend asks him, dude, what happened that night? Like, really, what happened? Like, you know, I believe you and I'm going to support you no matter what. But I would still really like to know what happened. And then that's when fucking AJ turns into a gaslighting piece of shit where he's basically... Well, I mean, it was consensual in the sense that when we started, she didn't want to. Uh, you know, he even says I had to egg her on a little bit or I had to prod her, prod her into it a little bit. But that once everything got hot and heavy, that she seemed like she was into it. And then the friend says, well, did she say no at any time? And he's like, well, yeah, she said no at the beginning, which obviously in the eyes of the law, for those of you who don't know, too, you young gentlemen who might be listening If you're in an intimate situation with a woman, the instant she says, no, you must stop or it is rape. That's it. It's that fucking simple. You don't have to penetrate her. You don't have to get any of her clothes off. If you if she says no and you continue with your you know frontal attack, that's it. You're a rapist. It's over. So, you know, once the once he tells this part of the story to the friend, you kind of see the friend's facial expression change. But he's not like me, because if it was me, I'd have told him flat out, dude, you fucking raped that girl, you idiot. But of course, this guy doesn't really want to start a big shit with his friend. So he's like, okay, yeah, I guess I can kind of see where the confusion is. He ends up getting home drunk that night. And what the fuck does he do? He calls his accuser on the phone. (laughs) Of course, she doesn't answer. But he ends up leaving a drunk message where he's like, I didn't think anything was wrong. I, I thought we had a good time. If I did something that offended you or made you uncomfortable, I'm sorry. You know, just this absolute gaslighting douchebag, you know, trying to make himself the victim. He ends up hanging up the phone. He intends to go to bed to just kind of, oh, no, he does. He does end up going to bed. Uh, He wakes up the next morning, pukes a couple of times, realizes that there's stuff in his bathroom, like there's still an electric toothbrush plugged in, still charging in his bathroom. There's there's toiletry bags, things like that. And then he sees that his basement door is open and it's propped open with a chair. And he's like, wait a minute, I didn't do that. I know I didn't do that. And he ends up walking down into the basement. And when he gets there, this is what's kind of weird about this character that really just just piles on as to how much of a piece of shit this guy is. Once he realizes that there's a basement, like a, a secret underground set of tunnels in his house, he starts to look up real estate websites asking, can you can you add underground dwellings into the total footage of a house? Because obviously, like I said, he's trying to sell this house. And he's just trying to find any way to go the system at all. And he literally grabs a tape measure and he goes downstairs and he fucking measures the room of death with the bed and the bucket and the camera. And then he measures the entire corridor. And then when he gets to the end of the corridor, he bumps into the secret door, realizes that it's a door. He opens it, whereas most fucking normal human beings would look down this staircase and just say, nope. 
uh, no way. He smiles and he's like, oh, yeah, more footage. Awesome. So he literally he's going down the stairs with his tape measure. He's measuring all of everything down there. He ends up finding the same secret room with the uh, nursing video, the breastfeeding video playing on the TV. Apparently, this is a 24-hour breastfeeding channel, or it's a videotape just on a loop. That's probably the, the more accurate answer. See, I, I have less of an issue of him going down there because as the owner of the house, he, yes, exactly. he probably just thinks, oh, this is some abandoned shit from you know a previous owner. Whereas when she went down there... She knows full well she's not the owner, so there's things about this house that could be going on that she doesn't know about. So, like, I I, I was trying to think if it was me, I probably would have been curious enough to go through that initial, like, secret garage wall door yeah. and then, you know, walk down that first hallway. But once there was that stone staircase to like the depths of the fucking earth i'm like i'm not going down that there at least not by myself yeah, exactly. I think yeah that's the that. yeah that's the point of it's yeah that's the uh no point for me yeah exactly so and, and in tess's defense she didn't go down those stairs voluntarily she went down there because she heard keith screaming um but still just the mere fact that she didn't leave the house when she first found the you know the the kill room or whatever you want to call that room um, it, that just bothered me because she, she seemed like she was such a, like on the ball kind of girl. Like she does have a sense of self-preservation because when she's talking to Bill Skarsgård's character earlier in the film, they even get to the point in the conversation where Bill is like, well, you know, if you would have gotten here first and I came knocking on the door saying that the house was double booked, would you have let me in? And she's like, fuck no. There's no way I would have let you into this house had you gotten here second. So it was the, it's the type of thing where it's lucky that Keith got there first because they were able to share the place because, you know, yeah. Tess was the one who I, got there second. I feel like they they do a lot of, like, playing with um, character arcs or fake arcs or would-be arcs or just, you know, pretend redemption story. Like, they they set the viewers up a lot in this movie where you think they're trying to go a certain way with the character and they don't because that's the other thing i was thinking of like oh is she um does she feel like more not obligation but kind of like like she should go help because the whole time she thought that he was like creepy and out to get her and then finally she like let down her defenses and like okay he's a decent guy so then when she ends up hearing him in some type of trouble or peril it kind of motivates her like well after everything i previously thought maybe i'll go see if he needs some type of help so i thought maybe that's where they were trying to go with it and then like and then they almost repeat the same thing with justin long's character where you know we're inter we're introduced to his character thinking he's already a would-be rapist so it's like are they trying to almost do the fake out redemption with him because we already had it with her where she kind of switched her opinion on Skarsgård. So with Justin Long, it's like, oh, are they trying to make us, you know, set us up falsely to think, oh, he's really a good guy that got caught up in something not on the level, but uh, it goes in a different direction. Yeah, very obvious. Yeah, yeah. But so, um, like I said, while uh, AJ is measuring the basement, he does end up finding that secret room. 
he ends up going even farther into the catacombs, still measuring. By the way, the, I don't know about you guys, but at my at the first showing that I went to see, the audience was dying during this scene. Like, you'd have thought they were watching Spaceballs or something. Like, they were laughing, really. And I'm thinking, okay, it's mildly funny. But literally every time he would pull out the tape measure and measure yet another hall in the catacombs, people, it was just uproarious laughter. I don't know what the hell was so funny about it, other than the fact that he, you know, he's probably about to die and he's worried about the value of his home. The only thing I, yeah, the only only thing I can think of is if, is because, you know, because we already went through that with the initial act of the movie that like now you have this goofy ass dude out down there tape measuring people assume, okay, he's going to get it. So there's like that tension, like the almost breaking the tension with laughter, I guess. Exactly. Yep. So, uh, like I said, um, AJ continues down the catacombs, still measuring. Then eventually he does run into our titular in the credits. She's called the mother and we'll probably, oh, I'll get into why she's called the mother here in a little bit, but it's right back to the, um, you know, this creature, this female superhuman of some kind, obviously humanoid, but mutated in some way, um, potentially inbred. Hmm. Anyway, um, they do end up having like like she does end up catching up to him and he ends up falling into a trap. She's uh, apparently she's got traps like pitfalls uh, throughout the catacombs that are pretty well hidden because the catacombs aren't lit. It's all dark. So whatever light you bring with you is the only light you're going to have down there, be it a flashlight, a cell phone, whatever the case may be. So um aj ends up getting chased by uh the mother and falls into this pitfall and then we see the lid get shut like a a metal cage door basically gets shut behind him and he's like oh shit i'm trapped and then just when he starts he starts to like verbally freak out like you know he starts like not quite yelling but like i said just kind of a minor verbal freak out out comes tess from the shadows yes tess is still alive somehow and she has also been captured by this creature running around the catacombs. But she tells, she's been there already for two weeks. So she's kind of savvy to how this thing works. And basically what she says uh, to, to AJ is that she just wants children. She wants us to be her babies. As long as you do whatever you want and you, or whatever she wants you to do and you don't freak out, like you don't start yelling or try to run away or anything like that. She won't hurt you. She will treat you like she, like you're one of her children and, you know, basically take care of you. And then at that moment, what we see is we see the arm of the creature going down into the tank with a baby bottle in its, in its hand, a decrepit, nasty ass looking baby bottle with like hairs all over the nipple and the, what, whatever's inside of the bottle does not look like pure milk. It looks like there might be other shit in there. But um, basically she's sticking the bottle down there trying to get uh, Justin Long to drink, literally to take a couple of sips. Obviously he just got there. He's freaked out. He refuses to drink from the bottle Tess is basically pleading with him, just drink, just take a couple of drinks. She's going to kill you. And, and he just absolutely refuses. Um, then the mother or the creature, I should say, uh, puts the bottle closer to Tess. And we see Tess actually suck from the bottle a little bit, actually take like a couple of uh, squeezes from the nipple 
um, to get, God, I, I hope breast milk, but the thing is the breast milk from this thing, I don't think would be drinkable, <laughs> but whatever. So, cause it's the only place I could figure she's getting milk. It's, this woman doesn't look like someone who's uh, going to the store at night, you know? So, um, and after, after Tess takes a couple of sips from the bottle, um, the creature then tries to get Justin uh, AJ again to sip from the bottle. Again, he refuses. So she gets all pissed off. She opens the lid of the cage, jumps down like a fucking predator, grabs AJ by the leg and literally climbs out of the tank uh, of the pit. Uh, pretty impressive actually. So obviously there's more to this woman than just, you know, being trapped in this basement or if she's even trapped or whatever the case may be, we do, we do get more backstory later. Um, after uh, she pulls AJ out of the pit, Tess is able to get out of the pit herself. And she basically starts to run away. Uh, she starts to think, well, shit, maybe I should help this guy out, but uh, she can't, you know, she, she decides, no, I'm going to leave. But when she finally gets back into the basement part of the house, the fucking door closed behind her again because AJ moved the chair because he didn't know why the chair was there to begin with. But this time she's so adamant about getting out of the basement that she literally just smashes the glass of that uh, little window that we mentioned earlier with her bare hands. She's literally just smashing the shit out of the glass. She ends up just barely getting out of the house to the point where she literally turns around and there's the creature at the window looking out at her but she won't come out. So, you know, Tess obviously thinks she's safe for a little while. She ends up, um, she ends up running into the homeless guy again. You remember the homeless guy from earlier in the film, she ends up running into him again. And this is where we find out he wasn't attacking her in that, uh, the first scene where we saw him, he was trying to warn her not to go in that house because he knew what was in there already. Yes. We have a, 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 a local who, you know, uh, basically stays out of everybody's business. And this is the scene where he explains to Tess that she does come out at night. You're not safe in this neighborhood at night. She will come out. She will hunt you down. You know, she'll smell you out and she'll bring you back to the house and she'll more than likely kill you because you're no longer acting like her child, like her baby. So blah, blah, blah. She feels, she starts to feel bad for the, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the homeless guy basically tells Tess, oh, she's been living down there for 40 years. She's never going to leave. Um, and then at this point, this is where we get our flashback. The camera pans away from the homeless guy to the house in modern time. And then it basically fades into the idyllic, you know, version of the neighborhood from, I can only assume the seventies, even though we already talked about some discrepancies in this scene. But what we see is Richard Brake playing a character named Frank walking out of the same house, 476 Barbary Lane, and, uh, you know, goes into his car. Obviously, there's neighbors, there's people walking the dogs, there are people mowing their lawns, like it's a fully active neighborhood. Of course, everyone is white. I won't get into that. But, uh, <laughs> um you know, he, he's talking to one of his neighbors. The neighbor lets him know, oh, I've decided to sell the house. It seems like the neighborhood's kind of going to shit. And I think a lot of us are, you know, uh, thinking about moving. Are you are you thinking about selling the house too? And basically he just says it with one line, I ain't going nowhere. And then we see him 
get into his car, go to the store uh, that I mentioned earlier, and he's buying um, sheet uh, like plastic sheets, like you know um, rolls of plastic sheets. Um, what else is he buying? Uh, diapers, uh, a baby formula. Like he, he's buying some conspicuous items, especially for, you know, a single guy just kind of walking around there by himself, not wearing a wedding ring. He's definitely buying some unusual items. What we see then is he ends up following one of the women who walks out of the store after him. He ends up driving and following her home. When she gets home, he parks in like a side alley and then he puts on a DWP uh, jumpsuit, you know, Department of Water and Power, one of those gray jumpsuits that they all wear. And he knocks on the woman's door. And obviously we think, you know, we're about to get a pretty fucking awesome violent scene. But what we get is he knocks on the door. He tells her, ma'am, there've been some power outages in the neighborhood. We'd like to check your circuits if we can, blah, 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 blah. He ends up going into the house, going into her bathroom and unlocking the bathroom window. That's all he does. He just unlocks, you know, it's got one of those old traditional like sliding locks. He unlocks the bathroom window and then he just leaves without incident. He just says, oh, thank you, ma'am. It looks like everything's all right from what I can tell. And that's pretty much the end of the flashback. And I like that because, like I said, it just gives you little breadcrumbs of information to kind of fill in the blanks of the history of the house. You know, we don't see Frank kill anyone. We don't see him kidnap anyone. We don't see him do anything violent at all. But I, but he's such a menacing character. He's, you know, he's got this scowl on his face the entire scene. He doesn't like chit chat, obviously. He's, he only has a few lines in the whole scene, a couple to the woman. And then, like I said, one to the neighbor. Um, and that's it. That's our whole flashback. We are back to modern, to modern day. The sun is coming down, um, and the woman, uh, Tess, didn't go with the homeless guy because the homeless guy claims to have a safe area where um, the woman in the house will never get to. And then that's when we get more of an explanation. Oh, no, not yet. I'm sorry. Um, She basically decides to go back into the house uh, since it's still daylight. She's not going to go into the basement. She basically breaks the front window of the house just to get her keys. That's it. She gets her keys. She gets into her truck. And literally, I'm happy. I'm thinking, yay, she's going to get out. She, you know, she finally came to her senses. But what ends up happening is as she's pulling out the creature, this, you know, the female creature in the basement just smashes through the front door, literally knocks the fucking whole front door off the hinges and everything. And she's just out, you know, out in the open, butt naked, just screaming and yelling at Tess. Instead of driving away, Tess, uh, you know, does the more vengeful thing and puts the, the car in gear and basically pins the female creature against the house. We see the creature kind of struggle a little bit, but then we see kind of the life leave her eyes, her eyes close, and then she's motionless on the hood of the car. Tess, the smart girl that she is, does not move the car. She leaves the car right there and goes back into the house to see if she can find Justin Long. Now, while all this was happening outside, Justin Long's character, AJ, is still, you know, traversing the catacombs, and he ends up... um, He's at one point he's being chased by the creature and then he gets to a door and he just stands by the door and he sees the creature start to come towards him. 
But then she kind of looks behind him and sees the door and she leaves. She ends up like kind of, you know, scuttling away like she's scared of something in that room. Justin, of course, goes into the room thinking that, oh, well, maybe it's safe in here because uh, and earlier in the conversation with Tess and the homeless guy, the homeless guy did make a cryptic statement that there's more dangerous stuff in that house than that woman. And then, like I said, then we go to the scene with Justin in the basement being chased by her. He gets to the door. She leaves him alone. He goes into the room. And what do we find? Uh, Octogenarian Richard Brake lying in the bed, basically motionless. Like he he literally looks like he's on death's door. And what uh, and AJ obviously thinks that maybe this guy is also a prisoner of the creature of the female. So he you know, he gives him water, um, you know. Richard Brake at this point, Frank can't talk. Like I said, he's literally on the brink of death. He points towards the end table, like a, the, the little bedside end table. But Justin Long's character, AJ, doesn't understand what he wants. So he literally picks up the entire end table and brings it over to them, uh, to him. And then while Richard Brake opens the top drawer and is searching around for something, AJ notices all of these videotapes with different women's names on them. And some of the tapes don't even have names. Some of them will say like girl from the mall or girl from the bowling alley, girl from the supermarket. He ends up putting one of the tapes in and we don't actually see what's played on the tape, but we do hear the audio. We hear a woman screaming. We hear someone beating her, you know, someone doing awful things to her. At this point, you know, AJ turns around towards, you know, uh, the decrepit Frank in the bed, starts to call him a monster, says, what the fuck is wrong with you, blah, blah, blah. Mind you, this is Justin Long, a new rapist, (laughs) telling this man what the fuck is wrong with you, blah, blah, blah. Um, Finally, Frank finds what he was looking for in the drawer, and it's a revolver. It's a handgun. At first, he points it at AJ, you know, and... You know, we all think, oh, he's just going to kill AJ because he's annoying him. But what he ends up doing is he takes the gun uh, away from pointed at AJ and puts it up to his own head and just pulls the trigger unceremoniously, just takes himself out right in front of AJ, which, of course, freaks him out and uh, makes him want to run away, you know, run out of the room. I will give AJ credit because he does grab the gun before he leaves. Thankfully, he's not a weapon dropper. He is a dumbass when it comes to weapons, though, because multiple times before this scene, we see him with like a knife or something. And if something scares him, he freaks out and he drops the fucking weapon, which is kind of he's not a weapon dropper from ignorance. He's a weapon dropper from fear. So I don't know if that's any more forgivable or not, but whatever. But like I said, he's smart enough to take the gun and he takes the gun and he's trying to find his way out of the catacombs at the exact same time. Tess, like I said, has pinned the creature up against the house and she goes into the house to try to find AJ, you know, figuring, well, now that the creature is gone, I can get in there safely and get him out of there. What ends up happening is almost exactly what you fucking expect. Um, There's a misunderstanding as Tess turns the corner to try to find AJ. AJ doesn't know who he is, who it is. And he pulls the trigger shooting uh, Tess in the midsection. Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm screaming at Tess for even going back into that house. And then she ends up getting shot for her trouble and her punishment isn't over yet. We'll, we'll get to more of uh, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. This, this movie is a beautiful example of that statement. 
no good deed goes unpunished. So um, she's helping AJ out of the house. When they get out of the house, they realize that the woman is gone. Uh, the car is still there, pinned up against the house, but the woman is completely gone. Um, her car is obviously trashed because she, you know, slammed it into the, into the side of the house. Um, AJ's car is still there, but the keys are in the house and they don't want to go back in to get them with the woman still on the loose. You know, if the woman, maybe if her dead body was still there on the car, maybe they would have gone back in, but they don't. They end up going to the water tower where the homeless guy told Tess was a safe area. Uh, basically, they both go to the water tower, and then this is when we get a little bit more background on the house. Um, this is where the homeless guy, you know, starts talking about Frank and talking about the fact that he kidnapped and tortured and raped and murdered just multiple dozens of women. And that he literally, his whole intention with these women was to have a baby, uh, very much like our blind antagonist in Don't Breathe. You know, he just wanted to have a child. Um, here, but then the homeless guy basically says, um, he basically, he had babies with all these women that he kidnapped and then he had babies with the babies, uh, which is such a gross line. And now we're kind of starting to understand why this woman is in the basement. As it turns out, she is one of the love children of, you know, one of these incestuous love children, um, from Frank's, you know, um, escapades in the past which explains why she's mutated, why she looks like she belongs in a wrong turn, uh, you know, stuff like that. And literally at the exact moment where Tess asks the homeless guy, are you sure we're safe in here? Like she won't come in here. And he's like, nah, I've been living here for 15 years and she's never bothered me. Um, yeah, the problem is, is that she never bothered you because she didn't have a reason to, buddy. Now she has a reason to. And at that moment, at literally at the exact moment where he says, nah, she never bothers me. Boom. She comes crashing through the wall, not a door or a window, literally the fucking wall. She comes crashing through the wall. She grabs the homeless guy, rips his goddamn arm out and then beats him to death with it. I know it's a silly, over-the-top, almost cliche kill, but my friends, I fucking love it every time I see it. Rip off someone's appendage and beat them with it, and I will applaud every fucking time. And this one was pretty epic, because, you know, you could definitely tell that she was doing some damage, because the homeless guy didn't die from the arm rip. He was still alive, and she's just beating him unmercifully with his arm, crushing his skull, just absolutely destroying them so while she's doing that aj and tess are able to get out of the water tower don't forget tess has a bullet wound in her midsection so she's not exactly able to run very fast at this point aj turns into a completely selfish douchebag which he already was anyway but now he's not even trying to hide it he's literally running well in front of tess and Tess is like, wait, wait, I can't run that fast. I can't catch up with you. He turns around and he goes something along the lines of, I don't care. She'll catch you first and it'll give me a chance to get away. He literally says this out loud to Tess. Like, I, you know, flat out, I don't care. I'm going to worry about my own, you know, uh, self-worth right now or self-being, whatever the case is. They end up getting chased by the woman up to the water tower um, all the way up, they end up climbing all the way up to the water tower. They're up there. There's no guardrail around there. It's literally just a flat surface with no guardrail other than the staircase going down. 
and you literally see AJ start, you see the gears start to turn in his head. And then he makes another statement about, um, you know, he says, after I do what I'm going to do, make sure you keep her busy so that I can get away. He actually fucking says that to her. Like she's going to agree with him in any way, shape or form. But um, what ends up happening is the mother uh, ends up climbing up the stairs as well. And when she gets up to the top, AJ, like the selfish piece of fucking garbage that he is, literally grabs Tess by the hair and throws her over the edge of the water tower, um, you know, hoping that the creature would, uh, you know, I guess pay more attention to Tess while he got away. The creature, I, I, I got to say, the, the creature is actually a fairly loving creature when she thinks you're her child because she leaps off the water tower after Tess somehow is able to catch up to Tess and land on the ground first, saving Tess. So when AJ looks over the edge of the water tower, he sees both of their lifeless bodies on the ground and he sees a big blood stain coming from the head of the creature, the mother. He ends up walking down the stairs, you know, walking down the stairs of the water tower. He still has the gun in his hand, mind you. I'm yelling at him. Double tap, dude. Fucking double tap. It doesn't matter that they're dead. Put one in her fucking brain right now while you have a chance. Um, and it looks like he's about to. Like, he lifts up the gun, but then Tess starts coughing. That's when he realizes, oh, shit, Tess survived. And again, like the absolute piece of shit that he is, he starts apologizing. I'm so sorry I had to do that. I thought it was the only way I would get out of this alive. Um, you know, please don't hate me. He fucking actually says that. He just tried to murder this woman. And he literally says, don't hate me. I'm not a bad guy. I just do bad things. Oh, my fucking God. I love this. I, I, for whatever it's worth, Justin Long plays an awesome piece of shit. I will give him that. I've seen him play a piece of shit in multiple movies, Tusk, stuff like that. He always does a great job playing a piece of garbage. So, And this movie is no exception. Um, so like I said, he's apologizing to Tess, trying to help her up off the ground so that they can make their escape. And instantly the mother wakes up, head wound and all, still just oozing blood onto the ground. She gets up and she grabs Justin Long by the head. She buries her thumbs into his eye sockets and we see all that glorious ocular fluid coming out of the sockets of his eyes. And then she fucking splits his head like a butterfly shrimp. Now, this is one of the kills that I kind of wish the camera was at the front of the character, we see it from behind. We see it from behind Justin Long's character, behind AJ's head, but we very clearly see her split his head open. She butterfly shrimped his head. I, I, that was pretty satisfying, I will say. Um, you know, obviously, I try not to fall into that trap of um, getting gratification from shitty characters dying in movies, but, you know, th th this guy kind of deserved to die <laughs> anyway, so definitely no problem there. And then the mother uh, kind of turns her attention to Tess and she's still not mad at Tess. She's still, she's trying to like mouth out the words, baby. She keeps going, bebe, bebe, over and over again to Tess. And Tess now has the gun that AJ took from Frank. As uh, the mother bends over to pick up Tess to take her back home, 
Tess literally out loud says, I can't go back to that house, puts the gun right up to the monster's head, pulls the fucking trigger. And my friends, when I say the movie ended that instant, I'm not fucking kidding. The bullet goes off. Boom. Closing credits. I couldn't get it. It was so jarring. Um, we, we do get a cool scene during the credits of Tess kind of walking out. The sun has risen. It's the next morning. And she's just kind of walking. She ends up finding a service station. The credits are rolling during all of this. And, you know, she gets to the service station. She's able to get um, she's able to get to uh, use of the telephone. And then the, the movie fades out and goes to the remainder of the credits. And that's it, folks. That is Barbarian 2022. Now, one of the things that I didn't mention during the walkthrough is how I like the name of this movie. This movie obviously is called Barbarian. And what I like about it is that when the homeless guy says, oh, she was born in that house, she's been here for over 40 years, it makes sense that somebody who was born on Barbary Lane is considered a barbarian. Because that would be the technical term, actually. If you came from a city called Barbary, you'd be called a barbarian. So it's not, it's like a, it's like a dual use um, of, with the term, you know, cause the woman actually is a fucking badass, you know, she's super strong, super fast, um, you know, big, she's taller than almost everybody in the movie. She's got these gnarly long nails that are very much like claws. Like they almost look like she sharpened them into claws, but you know, whatever. Uh, so, you know, creature design was cool. I liked the way the mother looked. I, I'm assuming that they call her the mother in the credits because she was, you know, one of the generations that, you know, um, she was begot by Frank, but then Frank went and had a child with her. So now she becomes, quote unquote, the mother. One of the things that I kind of, I don't know if they're trying to save up for a sequel but even though the homeless guy talks about how Frank would rape these women, have babies with them, and then have babies with the babies, you would expect that there would be more creatures in this movie. But we only get the one. So did she just kill everybody else that was trapped in the catacombs with her? Or is she just the only lucky one who survived, you know, an inbred, you know, birth, whatever? I don't know. They don't get into it in the movie. Obviously, like I said, Frank commits suicide, so... That's the end of any exposition we're going to get out of him. But um, so, yeah. So, like I said, I like the dichotomy of the title of Barbarian being both a badass warrior and someone from Barbary. Um, I do. Talking about this makes me kind of enjoy the movie more because there is a lot of fun to be had in this movie. There's a lot of frustrating elements that you have to deal with. But it's still overall a very fun movie. Like I said, I kind of put this on a par with Malignant in the sense that on my first watch, I, I was a little jarred with some of the transitions and how the story kind of changed pacing and everything else. But on second watch, I kind of warmed up to it knowing what was coming. Same thing with this movie. When I watched it the second time, I was a little bit more forgiving of the stupidity of some of the characters in this movie. You know, AJ's care. And we we completely skipped the cop scene that Mike was talking about earlier. That's right. Shit. Uh, basically, after Tess escapes the house the first time when she smashes through the basement window, she is able to get a couple of police officers to come. Uh, you know, they're patrolling the neighborhood and they see her and she starts to tell her story that she's been held captive for two weeks in that house right there. 
the cops obviously don't believe her. They're like, uh, no one lives in that house, ma'am, blah, blah, blah. She's like, I know I, I, I rented it as an Airbnb, but there's something in the basement and it killed the other guy, blah, blah, blah. You know, she's, she's frantic and trying to explain to it. The cops are just looking at her. Like, you know, she's absolutely insane. And then the, the black cop, the one who's driving, basically looks her up and down and just kind of decides not to help her. Now, I understand if he looked at her and thought that she was some kind of drug addict or something. Admittedly, she was dirty because she had been in that basement for the last two weeks. But my friends, Georgina Campbell is a beautiful woman. So you've got a beautiful woman who just happens to be a little dirty and there's no way she's a crackhead because she has all her fucking teeth and they're pearl white. That, that's the easiest way to tell if someone is a crackhead, a meth head, look at their fucking teeth. No crackhead or meth head in the world is going to have beautiful, beautifully aligned teeth that are pearly white. It's just, so that's why this scene is so fucking frustrating because even a half retarded cop could have looked at this woman and known she's not a crackhead. Uh, there's the, there's very obviously there's despair in her eyes but the other the other dead giveaway is two brand new looking cars sitting in front of the house all she has to do is say hey this is my car run the plates it'll come up with my name and all my belongings Valid. are inside the house and i can't get in the house like that to me the whole uh cop stuff was even way more stupid than her being curious enough to go down in the basement because at least that's like a trope that's in like a lot of horror movies, but the whole thing with the cops and I'm like, she has plenty more ammo there to like at her disposal to say, Hey, you know, run the plates on this car. Like what are these brand new? Well, maybe they might not be brand new, but they're good condition cars. Two of them doing this in this, in this neighborhood like this, just kind of randomly sitting here. And you would think the cops would even kind of notice that like, this rundown, you know, it's not even like a bad neighborhood. It's like pretty much in an uninhabited neighborhood. That's how rundown it is. And there happens to be this one house with these two cars there. You would think the cops might even get out and like do a little more exploring, but I mean, one of them gets out of the car and knocks on the door like an idiot. He just knocks on the door. Obviously there's no answer. She's trying to plead with them to just break the door down. The cop is like, I'm not going to vandalize someone's house. And then he even looks at her and says, I should arrest you because you smashed that window because, you know, she tells the cop, I had to smash the basement window to get out. And I had, you know, and and the cop is basically it almost seems like he's implying that he's going to arrest her for vandalism. So, yeah, this this entire fucking scene, I already have a problem with horror movie cops, mainly because of incompetence. But this is an incompetence. This is fucking disdain. This is sheer just hate, not caring about the community. Now, like I said, folks, this is Detroit. This is the murder capital of the country. I understand that cops in Detroit are going to get jaded, but there was no reason for them to treat this situation like this. To not even call in her name, or like Mike said, the plates, to to even go into the house through the broken window. It's like they could have gone in through the broken window, not done any more damage to the house, and still, you know, would have been able to find, you know, some corroborating evidence to what she's telling them. So, yeah, easily the most frustrating scene in the movie. I really, really wish it wasn't even in here. I, I just eliminate the entire fucking scene. It's not like it adds anything. It's not like we see the cops later. We don't. We never see the cops again. It, it's literally a throwaway scene just to add frustration to the viewer, and I don't appreciate that. So, 
Yeah, if any, if anything, they could have had the cops help her get in there, and then somehow they get trapped in there, and then the creature comes and kills the cops yeah. or something like that. I mean, at, at least it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least it shows that like the cops are making a good faith effort to help. Because to me, the way the cops are portrayed in this is they just have no interest from the get go in either listening to her or even helping her if she was in some kind of trouble. And other than her clothes being kind of like disheveled, she doesn't you know display. It's not like she's telling, like, wild tale versions of this, you know, where she's saying, like, oh, fairies in the house have trapped me. She doesn't sound like a crackhead. No. She sounds, I mean, considering she's been trapped for two weeks, I thought she she relayed her information rather well. She was frantic, yes, but considering how frantic she could have been, you know, I thought she did a good job explaining what happened, explaining to the cops what's what. I mean, she's even yelling at the cops. There's still a guy in there. He's still in the house. He could be getting killed right now, and you guys aren't doing anything. Of course, they look at her, you know, like she's insane. They end up getting a call about shots fired in some other part of the city, and they end up just leaving her right there in front of the goddamn house. Um, This is when she goes back into the house, gets the keys to her car, tries to drive away, and then we have that whole interaction with the mother and pinning her to the house and everything, but... Man, this fucking scene. If I was a Detroit cop, I would be mad at this movie. I legitimately would be fucking mad. Way more mad than any fireman who saw Halloween Kills. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, mm. I think that's about all I got for this one. I do still recommend it. It has its problems. It There are frustrating elements to it. I, I think we kind of went over all of them. Um, obviously, if you're still with us, I would imagine you've already seen the movie or you don't have any interest in seeing the movie, but I, I would still highly recommend it. Even if you don't want to go to theaters to see it, which I would recommend seeing this in theaters, supporting a movie like this is fairly important in our genre. It is, like I said, it's still somewhat of an original story. It's not the most original story I've ever seen. You know, we've seen monsters in the basement type movies before plenty of times, a lot of them in the 80s, actually. But um, I think that I think the movie's constructed in a unique way, but it's yeah. a lot of it's a lot of familiar elements from other movies that are kind of you know, built to make this one. Exactly. So yeah. Kind of like Malignant. I mean, the way you would say Malignant is like a take on basket case at the end, but it's still managed to make it kind of in a newish way, I guess. Or evil dead trap. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I do see the basket case resemblance as well. got to see evil dead trap, man. Evil dead trap is basically malignant in, in what? Yeah. Here's Japan. Evil, Japan. That's a Japanese movie. So yeah, it's malignant in Japan. <laughs> and I do recommend it. It's a great movie. Uh, I do too. Yeah. Other than that, though, I think I'm all set on Barbarian. A good movie with some flaws, but still very watchable. And you might, like I said, if you're forgiving of stupid characters, then you might have a really good time with this one. So go check it out. Yeah, I'm pretty much right there with them. Yep. I had fun with it. Go see it. And, you know, if you. Oh, I, I, will, I will say um, I, I, I do kind of would um, recommend maybe waiting for the video because I think maybe the picture quality might improve. I think maybe the transfer would probably be improved and you can actually see what's going on a little bit more often. Yeah, if they put out a 4K of this and you have like a really nice big 4K TV, it might look a little bit better in the house. Yeah, because it's not going to be 4K in the theaters, obviously. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to wrap this up. So let's find out where else we can hear everyone. Venom, you're up first. All 
right. So for me, we just released our latest episode of No More Room in Hell presents Creature Comforts. Now, this is not episode 12. Um, unfortunately, Derek wasn't able to join us because of a family emergency. So uh, Don and I decided to do a Fantasia special where we looked at three films that screened at the recent Fantasia in what, June, I believe? Uh, June, July. I, I, I can't remember. Like it's, that, right? it's been a while. Yeah. It's been a while, yeah. So basically, we look at three creature features that were released, all three of them kind of being kaiju movies. Two of them are solidly kaiju. One of them has kaiju in the title, but it's not exactly a kaiju film. So yeah. <laughs> that, that episode just dropped today, so check that out. Um, unfortunately, it is labeled as episode 12, but it's technically a Fantasia bonus episode uh, since Derek wasn't able to join us. But, you know, take it as you will. Um, that's available today on darkdiscussions.com. Uh, the main show, No More Room in Hell. Uh, unfortunately, we had another cancellation this weekend, and hopefully this coming weekend we'll get together to look at my picks, which are 1960s Eyes Without a Face and 2015's Goodnight Mommy. I think it's 2015. It's somewhere in that range. Um, so that'll hopefully, fingers crossed, get recorded this week and be available sometime next week. And I think that's all I have, unfortunately. Not a whole lot else going on in Venom Land right now. All right. How about you, Don? Uh, yeah. Uh, Creature Comforts bonus episode. Uh, that sh is uh, available today because that was just released a few hours before we we recorded this. So it's uh, definitely out. Uh, latest episode of uh, the Horror Countdown. Um, I had a, a few uh, filmmaker friends of mine on to look at um, H.P. Lovecraft adaptations. Woo! So yeah, that was a uh, really fun time. And uh, the last one is uh, the guest spot on uh, the Night Club podcast where uh, we went ahead and did a uh, special Sharknado look, which was a uh, lot of fun with that. Woo! So. Uh, yeah, um, like I've Sorry been saying, fun movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, nightclub is uh, two words, so it's night club. Uh, look for it pretty much everywhere. Um, it's the latest episode, so uh, yeah, go ahead and check that one out. Other than that, yeah, I don't have much else coming. Um, I, I think, Venom, you and I are just waiting around for uh, a special guest spot to appear because I think we're both included in a uh, special seasonal um, challenge. Oh, right. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, but uh, I think we're still waiting around for their, uh, any announcements on that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, um, for now, I think the, that's pretty much it. Okay. And as far as I go, I don't think I have anything new. So... You'll have something new by the end of the week. I just got to finish editing it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Well, something to come. There you go. Something <laughs> to talk about next week. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, what's what's hitting theaters this Pearl. 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 That's right. Uh, Friday the 16th. Yes. Opening this weekend. The prequel to X. Uh, I assume everyone who loved X is going to run out and see Pearl this weekend. Um, and we will be no different. We'll be here talking about it on the next episode. Yeah. I, I got to ask, is this the first time a prequel has ever actually been released the same year as the movie? It's a prequel to. Hmm. I thought about that the other day as well. Like I was, I was surprised 
Like I didn't, obviously I didn't realize that this thing was coming out before we saw X, you know, once we saw that post credit scene in X, you know, we realized that we're getting a prequel, but I'm, I'm at a loss for other examples. I do have examples of sequels that came out in the same year, but that's only because they shot them at the same time. Yeah. That's so. it. That's, same, that's what I was thinking too. Cause like sleepaway camp two and three or, um, Oh, there's a there's a few I know from like filmmaker friends of mine that yeah. shot like one movie, shot one movie and split them up. Or I mean, I mean like we're making the most famous example, Puppet Master four and five. Huh. Yeah. Either way, though, I'm mildly yeah. excited for this one. Again, it's Ty West, uh, and I do love to meet some Ty West, even though. I was probably the lowest on X uh, when we reviewed it. I still did enjoy it a lot, but um, we'll see. I mean, I, again, I haven't watched a trailer, so I have no idea. I mean, obviously, we already saw X, so we kind of know what we're kind of what we're getting. Obviously, I, I know nothing about the plot or story at all since I haven't watched a trailer, but uh, I'm still kind of looking forward to it. So, we'll see. fingers crossed. I just hope it's fun with good kills. I mean... That's the type of movie they're setting it up to be, so to me, that's where it has to deliver. I mean, it can totally, like, throw me for a loop and be good for other reasons, but I'm like, the way they're selling it is Crazy Pearl going on a killing rampage, so let's see it. (laughs) All right, cool. Well, with that said, uh, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Fresh Cuts. We will catch you in a week's time to, to... talk about pearl so until then thanks everyone for listening let's say bye to listeners later stay out of the fucking basement yeah and the stairs that lead to an even deeper basement if you find a stairway to hell in your house just fucking leave sell the house leave or just assume hell's down there and you know what you're getting yourself into you know there's nothing good down there it's not like you're gonna go down there and find like a vault full of gold bricks so yeah yeah, they they don't they don't build disneyland in in the catacombs (laughs) so (laughs) all right peace